Hello out there and welcome to Ecology and Me bonus round. We're back with botanist, plant ecologist, and conservation scientist Jessa Finch to answer some more plant questions. We spoke to Jessa about why we have grass lawns in front of our houses, but there was so much more to talk about. So let's dive right in. First up, what is something plants have taught you in your life and work? The plants have taught me and continue to teach me (laughs) to not make assumptions, which is something I feel like our society has been thinking about a lot in other ways. It's very humbling to be a scientist and you're always figuring out new things and always having to correct yourself and always having to admit that you were wrong or you only had part of the story. Plants have taught me to be way more comfortable with uncertainty and with not feeling shame or embarrassment when we are learning more over time. Speaking of learning more over time, first question, what is the difference between crossbreeding plants and grafting plants? I've heard of both, but have no idea what the difference is. You can attempt to hybridize or cross any two plants. It will not always work. So speciation or the evolution of different species usually involves the development of one or more reproductive barriers. So we have reproductive isolation. So once this group can, can no longer cross breed, breed with this group naturally is one of our definitions for species. So this is now a distinct species from another species. But this, this separation could be something like a mountain range. So if there's a huge landslide, there's a gap mountain range now, and these two populations are now commingling and they begin interbreeding, then they may no longer in, you know, several generations, tens of thousands probably, <laughs> be, be different species. And then how come it doesn't happen all the time? Why don't, why aren't plants interbreeding always? So you've seen a bumblebee bopping around a garden. That bumblebee is not only going to one type of flower, it's going to a bunch of different flowers. And so it ends up being covered in both con-specific pollen and hetero-specific pollen, which means when it goes to another flower, that flower may be receiving pollen from a same species plant or a different species plant. More often than not, if it's a different species plant, that pollen will just not even germinate. Okay, here's the birds and the bees talk for flowering plants, which is very much a birds and bees talk. Pollen is made up of microspores produced by male plants. It is essentially flower sperm. (coughs) Pollen is either blown by the wind or carried to other flowers by birds or bees or other pollinators. Then it travels to the ovary, which in many flowering plants sits right at the base of the petals. The ovary gets fertilized by the pollen and makes seeds, which are then scattered by the wind or you guessed it, birds and bees. And some of these seeds will grow into new plants in a process that's also known as germination. There are a lot of stages in that crossbreeding process before you end up with a a viable seed. And then even if you end up with a viable seed, it may now be able to produce viable progeny. Like, you know, with donkeys and horses, you can make a mule but two mules can't have a baby. But there are some plant species that are pretty sexually liberated. There are certain genera or uh, families that are just can get down with pretty much anyone. <laughs> like Quercus, the, the oaks are always hybridizing. It's very hard to identify a lot of oaks in the field because you'll have 
tons of hybrids. And so it can just be a real headache. I've also seen this with violets and with some willows. <laughs> um, but yeah, it varies. <laughs> we, we as plant breeders can remove a lot of reproductive barriers. So even though this cone flower and this cone flower, their native ranges are entirely different parts of the country. We can bring those two together in an artificial environment and perhaps make a hybrid that could never naturally have occurred just because of the geographic distance separating those two species. Okay, so that's crossbreeding in plants. What is grafting? Grafting is super cool and super weird. Grafting is taking apart one plant, cutting off the branch of another plant, making contact between the meristems of the two plants and having them grow together, the tissues of two different plants. It's similar in some ways to an organ transfer where you're giving someone a kidney and then that kidney becomes incorporated into their body. So this thing that used to be not a part of this plant is now their systems have completely fused. Like you can have an apple tree in your backyard and each branch of the apple tree is a different type of apple. You can really only do it with plants that are pretty closely related. You couldn't, that, that's the comment I was going to make about hybridization too. Uh, it's more likely that you would have successful viable progeny from a hybridization if they're more closely related. Um, but that you can also use grafting to create dwarf varieties or weeping varieties of certain plants. So that instead of just doing like a, a branch graft, you're really taking rootstock and just putting a whole new tree on top of that rootstock. So it would have probably a graft scar at about soil level. It's pretty wild. And then people get into like tree art where they're like grafting trees together to make like sculpture in different ways. Google that later. I did Google that later and found a project by artist Sam Van Aken called The Open Orchard. It's a new work for New York City's Governor's Island that will, quote, take the form of a public orchard of 50 hybrid fruit trees. Each individual tree will be grafted with multiple varieties of peaches, plums, apricots, nectarines, cherries, and apples that originated or were historically grown in the New York City region over the past 400 years, but which have been lost to the industrialization of agriculture, preserving their biodiversity for future generations. Science meets art. I love this, especially now that I know what grafting is. I'll put a link to this project in the show notes if you want to check it out. Okay, our next question comes from Alana in Ithaca, New York. How do vines know to grow in specific directions? Plants grow in response to lots of different stimuli in their environments. And these mechanisms are called tropisms. So for example, gravitropism is response to gravity's force, phototropism to light. And these can be positive or negative, so they can grow towards or away from. One of their tropism is stigmotropism, which refers to touch or contact. So when a plant comes into contact with a fence post or a tree, it can recognize that and start to twine its way around it and go up. There are a few different types of vines. Some do the twining where they circle a stem or like pole beans, you've seen them, they go right up. And this is because they're growing more on one side than the other. One side expands, the other contracts, and then they can twine around a support. You also have clingers by some people. They have little feet. So if you've ever pulled like a Virginia creeper or ivy off of a structure, you'll see it actually has like little sucker feet or little tendrils that like hook in. The third type is, oh, 
Yeah, with the tendrils. This is like with the, with the sweet pea where it has a little branch that grows out and around and kind of gives you an anchor point and you continue to grow up. So they use a combination of gravity, light, and touch to kind of make an educated guess about where they can go to get access to more sunlight. They are definitely responding to all of these stimuli and some of the cellular mechanisms are better understood than others, but they're they're responding to everything that's going on. They're really aware of a lot more than we give them credit for. Up next is Julia from New York City, who had a few amazing questions. How do plants increase humidity by being physically close to each other? Yeah, so plants actually bring out moisture from the soil into the air. And so this happens through uh, transpiration. It's kind of like a straw. The plant sucks up the water into the roots, up through the stems, into the leaves, And then in the leaves, plant leaves have these pores called stomata. And so the vast majority of that water then evaporates through the stomata into the air. I think it's 90% of the water that a plant is transpiring goes directly into the air. And so that's how it is increasing the water content of the air around the plant. Plants are like cute little green straws. Aw. Okay, Julia, bring us home with one more question. Do plants like music? This is such a delightful question as well. So from what, from my limited understanding, plants have been found to respond to sound, but it doesn't necessarily have to be musical in nature. Different uh, vibrations and different types of sound have have been found to have positive impacts on plant growth and on um, plant defenses and things like stress tolerance. And this is through changing hormone signaling and gene expression. But there's still a lot of questions over how the plant is sensing the sound without having, you know, eardrums. This is a very rich area for investigation, but unfortunately they don't seem to have, you know, very renowned tastes. They don't know if they can tell the difference between like country and rock or... (laughs) It's really probably just about vibrations. <laughs> I, I, I think some parts of the mechanism just aren't known to us yet, but it does make sense that say, if you are a grass and uh, there are big herd animals that are, you know, in this pasture, uh, if you are feeling a lot of vibrations and there's a lot of movement of these animals towards you, it may be a good time to kind of toughen up and release some of those secondary compounds There's a rationale for it. I just don't think we fully understand how that signal is being received by the plants as of yet. And these systems that have evolved have been around for hundreds of thousands of years, and they are so intricate. And we have really just begun to figure out how the pieces are put together. And we're kind of racing to figure that out while simultaneously destroying these systems and hoping that we can recreate them. So that's attention. Where are we ever going to know enough to be able to preserve these systems, protect biological diversity? It's kind of scary, but it's also, it's, it's meaningful work. Thank you, Julia and Alana, for these delicious questions. If you want to ask your own ecology questions, you can become a patron of the podcast for as little as $1 a month. Visit us at patreon.com slash ecology and me. Let's keep the questions going. Another big thank you to Jessa Finch. And thank you listeners for being here and supporting the show. It means the world. 
I'm Kate Douglas. Keep asking questions. This episode was recorded, mixed, and produced by me. Theme song is by the amazing Matthew Dean Marsh. Follow us on social at Ecology and Me.